The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. But Paul is going to argue today from this text, that's not true, okay? What shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, he says in verse 7. In fact, in verse 12, he says the law is holy and righteous and good. And yet, the Christian's relationship to the law is complicated. Okay, we're going to talk more about that next week. But this week, in this text, what Paul is largely focused on is vindicating the law. Vindicating the law from the claim that it's bad, that it's sin even. And he does so by showing us first that the law, it defines sin for us. That's important. And it's part of the reason that we can say that the law is holy, righteous, and good. It defines sin for us. Secondly, the law reveals sin in us. It doesn't just define sin for us. It reveals sin in us. But then thirdly, he's going to talk about a complex relationship between sin and the law. In particular, he's going to tell us how sin actually uses the law. Let's look at this first point. It comes to us loud and clear in the second half of verse 7. Paul writes, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He's referring here, of course, to the, the Ten Commandments and in particular the Tenth Commandment. And he says the very concept of coveting, which is to, to yearn for something that's not yours, right? To lust after it in your heart. In the context of Exodus 20, when this was first laid down, he names your neighbor's house on Zillow, right? Your, your neighbor's wife on Instagram, you know? He, his hired hands, his animals, his livestock, right? Which help him get his work done. He's talking about his profession and his, his, those, his means for creating income. Or anything that is your neighbor, Anything that's your neighbor's, he says in Exodus 20, verse 17. Anything. And that last part is really important because we can covet just about anything, can't we? A neighbor's dandelion-free yard? Hmm? Hmm? A friend's job? Or perhaps not their job. You don't really want to have to do what they do, but you'd really like their paycheck, their bank balance, someone's car, or a vacation that you see someone else taking, their health, their life circumstances, a body type that you'd really like for your own. We can covet anything. You know, I'm doing this little diet thing lately, and I was, at, I was at lunch this week with someone, and I found myself coveting their cheese. <laughs> Knock that off, Paul says. You, you shall not covet, God's word says. His law says. It's a command. It's a command from God, which means to not obey it, to disregard it, is sin, Paul tells us. And he makes, it makes super plain sense. I would not have known that that was sin unless the law has said so. The law defines sin for us. Consequently, you cannot be a Christian if you disagree with God's definition of sin. You can call yourself one, but you're not. We think about it, this is our whole problem before we become Christians. We, we don't agree with God on sin. 
We don't think things are that bad. We don't call sin what God calls sin, and therefore, we don't really expect or believe there to be a penalty for God for sin. Which means, I hope you see, you can't be saved. The whole biblical teaching concerning salvation is based upon a clear understanding of sin and what we need saving from and why we need saving to begin with. And so we might still believe in God in the abstract. Sure, there's a higher power, you think, but you haven't bowed the knee to him. You haven't turned to him as God. You're your own God. You've made up your own law. What you say is good and bad is good and bad. It's 100% subjective. And as long as your definition of sin is subjective, you'll never agree with the objective word of God. You'll never let God define it. You'll never let him be God. And listen, none of this changes when we become a Christian. Being free from the law and released from the law, as Paul was talking about earlier in the chapter that we looked at last week, does not make us free to do what we want any old time. No, the law still defines sin for us. The law is holy and righteous and good. And so beware, friends. Beware of anyone who claims to be a Christian but wants nothing to do with the holy shalls and shall nots of God's word. Beware of anyone who claims to be a Christian but is doing like hermeneutical gymnastics to to get out from under a clear shall or shall not of God's word. The imperatives of God's word are not suggestions. They're not a set of best practices for you to choose from based on what you really know is best for you. Instead, God's word comes at you, it confronts you, and it says to you, you don't know what's best for you. Who knows what's best for you? God does. Because he created you. And every true Christian knows this to be true. Every true Christian knows that that God expresses what is good for us through his word, through his laws, through his commands, even defining sin for us. Now, not only does the law define sin for us, it goes much further, actually. The second thing that Paul tells us in this passage is that the law reveals sin in us. Look at, the, look at this um, beginning in the last part of verse 8. Paul writes, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. For I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now look what Paul is saying. He, he's saying... At one point in my life, Paul's saying, at one point in my life, I was alive and sin was dead. But then the commandment came in and sin came alive and I died. Paul's telling us of his own experience here. An experience that is paradigmatic of all of us, but what does he mean by it? You know, when exactly is Paul referring to in his life when he was alive and sin was dead? And when exactly did the commandment come in for him? And what does that even mean? The commandment came. 
What, what, does that, what does that mean? And in what sense then did sin come alive and he died? We, we've got some questions, see? This, this is actually a great way to read your Bible, by the way. As you read, slow down enough when you read to ask some questions. Write them down even. Like, this is how we study God's word and, and not just merely read it. There's hard stuff in here, but it's good stuff in here. But sometimes to get into it, we got to think. And so let's break this down and think together this morning. What does Paul mean when he says in verse 9 that at one point in his life he was alive apart from the law and that sin was dead? He can't mean that sin was dead dead, can he? Sin is never dead dead. It's been in the world since Genesis 3 and it's not going anywhere until Revelation 21. It's affected and infected all of us. It's a power and it reigns, we've seen Paul say. All that in chapter 5. Now what he means here is that sin was dead experientially to him. This is another good way to read your Bible when you come across parts that are harder to understand. You need to be sure to interpret them in light of the parts that are clearer and easier to understand. And so there was a time in my life, Paul says, when I was living and I thought I was alive. I thought I was doing it all right. I felt like sin was dead to me. Think about Paul and how he describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees in Philippians chapter 3. There he says, I was living as though I was blameless as to righteousness under the law. Paul thought he was blameless as to righteousness Thought I had it all down, Paul says. I was keeping all the rules, and, and he was externally. He looked the part. And by alive, he's probably referring here to his own experiential like self-perception. He felt spiritually alive. He was self-satisfied, self-righteous, we might even say, which actually is not righteous at all. Sin was dead because he thought he was dead to it, but he wasn't. And soon enough, we're going to see that he was deceived. So he was alive and sin was dead, but then the commandment came, he writes. And the key to understanding this, I think, is the words, the commandment. He's referring to the 10th commandment, the one he just referenced, you shall not covet. This wasn't a new arrival for Paul. Paul wasn't like, wait a second, I only had nine and now there's a 10th? It wasn't, wasn't anything like that. As a Jewish man, he would have been brought up in the law, knowing the Ten Commandments by heart, for example, from a very young age. If we know anything about the Pharisees, we know that they loved the law and worked very hard to keep it. Now, what Paul means here when he says the commandment came is that it came in in a new way. We know this as the conviction of sin. So there was a time when he was alive and living his life and doing just fine with respect to God, he thought, but then something happened. We would call this, with New Testament eyes, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. At some point in his life, you know, perhaps it was before the Damascus Road experience, perhaps right after, but before his baptism. Listen, it doesn't really matter when this happened because Paul isn't writing an autobiography. He's writing a letter. He's not the point. Okay, we are. But at some point, the penny drops, so to speak. And it's significant that that moment had to do with the 10th commandment. Why? Well, all the other commandments, when you think about it, can be viewed externally, can't they? No other gods. 
No carved images. No taking the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your parents. No murder. No adultery. No stealing. No bearing false witness. These things can all be kept up, so to say. We can do them externally. But eventually, we come to understand, as Paul did, when the Holy Spirit brought conviction upon him, that the Christian life, all right, true spirituality, is not primarily about externals. It's internal. Jesus makes this pretty clear, doesn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, he, in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? He said, hey, it's, it's not just external, like literal murder that God is concerned with. You can murder someone in your heart. It's not like external, it's not just external, literal adultery that, that, we're con- that God's concerned with. You can sleep with someone in your mind. The desire is actually sinful too. The Pharisees cleans the, the, the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, Jesus says in Luke chapter 11. And this is what set home for Paul when the commandment came. Listen to how Francis Schaeffer talks about this. I find it really helpful. Francis Schaeffer says that the climax of the Ten Commandments is the Tenth Commandment. I'd never really thought of it that way before. The climax of the Ten Commandments is the Tenth Commandment. The commandment not to covet is an entirely inward thing. Coveting is never an outward thing. It is an intriguing factor that this is the last command that God gives us in the Ten Commandments and thus the hub of the whole matter. The end of the whole thing is that we arrive at an inward situation and not merely an outward one. He goes on, he says, actually, we break this last commandment not to covet before we break any of the others. Anytime that we break one of the other commandments of God, it means we've already broken this commandment in coveting. It also means that anytime we break one of the others, we break this last commandment as well. So no matter which of the other Ten Commandments you break, you break two. The commandment itself And this commandment not to covet. This is the hub of the wheel. And he concludes this. He says, thou shall not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. (laughs) This is what I think happened to Paul. He thought he was doing it all just right, but at some point the spirit brought brought the weight of the 10th commandment and he was exposed. He was cut to the heart, brought to his knees. And at that point, sin came alive and he died. It was as if he previously thought sin was dead and inert, but now it's alive. He sees it in his life. And when he sees it, he acknowledges it for what it is, allowing God to define sin as sin. He experiences, perhaps for the first time in his life, death, spiritual death. He knows that he knows it's sin, and he knows that sin separates him from God. The law, see, doesn't just define sin for us. When we really use it properly, when the Holy Spirit uses it in our life, it also reveals sin in us. Do you know this to be true of you? Or have you began to, to read the Bible maybe a little bit like a Pharisee? I got, it all, I got it all figured out. I'm doing good. Fine. Or if you maybe began to, to read the Bible licentiously, these don't really matter. 
Who cares about those commands, those imperatives? Maybe you stop reading the Bible altogether. Or at least, you know, make, skip, skip past those command stuff. Don't get too deep into that. See, both the Pharisaical Christian and the licentious Christian, they can read the Bible and skip right over the law, never letting it penetrate. Never slowing down to, to ask the Holy Spirit, oh, search me, oh God, and know my thoughts. Try me and know my heart. See if there be any, any, any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The, the Pharisee says, I'm doing just fine. I'm keeping all the rules. The licentious Christian says, I'm doing just fine. I don't need them. Both are failing to allow the law to do its job in their life. In fact, the first sign of spiritual life is to feel that you're dead, Paul says. Only then can you be born again. And once you're born again, this aspect of the law will continue in you. This isn't a one-time thing. The law continues to reveal sin in us, even as believers. We need not be surprised by this. You need not be shocked by this, which is another way of saying you need not be shamed by this. Not if you're justified by faith. Not if you're basing your sanctification upon your justification. Not if you know that you belong to Jesus securely by faith. Don't forget one of the most important theological principles there is. One of the first things Paul is so eager and anxious for us to know about in the book of Romans. No one is justified by keeping the law. You cannot justify yourself by keeping the law. Which means the foundation isn't isn't quaking when sin is revealed in your life. Instead, that's him who began a good work in you, seeing it through to completion. Don't run from that. Run to that. You have nothing to be ashamed of. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, what you are experiencing as, as shame, using worldly terminology, lives under another name using biblical terminology. It's conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's him saying to you, I love you. I created you. I know what's best for you. Don't live like that. Live like this. It's, it's best. Trust me. Turn from your ways and back to me. So the law defines sin for us. It reveals sin in us. It's holy and righteous and good. And yet, the law itself can no more sanctify us than it can justify us. I said it this way last week, that it is as impossible to be sanctified by the law as it is to be justified by the law. Why do I say that? How can I say that? Because the law cannot function as the agent of transformation. It can't do that since those who live under it are unable to perfectly keep it. 
The law itself contains no power to overcome sin. In fact, Paul says in this passage that sin actually uses the law, employs the law to accomplish its own end. That's radical. In other words, the law cannot be the antidote to human evil. It cannot be the kryptonite for sin. But to understand that, we need to understand just how, Paul tells us, that sin uses the law. To understand that, we need to remember that sin is, is not just you know, breaking an external rule. It's not just doing something that God tells us not to do or not doing something that God tells us to do. It includes that, but it's more than that. We've just said that desires, our desires can be sinful. Jesus says so in the Sermon on the Mount. You can sin in your mind. You can sin in your heart. You can sin in your imagination. Jesus said that's just as bad. It's still sin. But even more than that, Paul has told us in his letter to the Romans that sin is a power. It's something so powerful that it can reign. It's something that can exercise dominion over us. It's a slave master. It, it can control us. Do you know how strong sin is? Paul tells us here that sin is so strong that it can even make use of God's law for its deceitful ends. Look at verses 8 and 11 in your Bible. He writes, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Verse 11, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Sin here is twice described as something that can seize an opportunity. The word here for opportunity has also been used to describe a military base. Or it's a, a starting point or a base of operations for an expedition. A springboard for further advance. Sin seizes the base camp. The base camp of the law. And then it does two things, Paul says. Number one, it produces in us all kinds of covetousness. You see that in verse 8. You might say, well, ah, not really in me. I'm not really... A coveting person? Oh, really? May I ask then how content you are? Hmm? After all, the opposite of coveting is contentment. You can't do both. And when we lose contentment, we've either forgotten that God is God or we cease to submit to him. And therefore, we covet. We think, he's holding out on me. He's holding out on me. Where does this covetousness originate? Paul says sin can produce it in us. Sin can. How does that work? Well, we hear the law, you shall not covet, and somehow sin like, attaches itself to that law. It takes over that law in some way, and it uses it then for evil. The law isn't evil, it's holy, righteous, and good, but sin is so powerful that it seizes, it takes over the law and uses it for evil purposes. It's a terrifying and horrific illustration, but think of a person who gets into a car and drives that car into a crowd of people. 
There's been numerous stories uh, about this sort of horrific thing in the last few years. Multiple instances of evil like this. Listen, though, the, the car isn't evil. But someone has taken over the car. And now they've used the car for an evil purpose. So it is with sin in the law, Paul says. We hear the law say, you shall not. And our sinful, rebellious hearts say, you can't tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. I do what I want to do. And yet if that's how we respond, we're not actually free at all. We're being ruled by sin. Sin is producing in us the attitude that rebels against the law. It produces in us all kinds of covetousness. The second thing that sin does when it seizes the base camp of the law is it works to deceive us. We see this in verse 11. There's many ways sin deceives us through its seizure of the law, like the Pharisees, okay, or perhaps a modern-day fundamentalist. Sin can deceive us into misusing the law persuading us to believe that if we haven't performed an evil deed, we remain free from sin. As long as we're keeping up the appearances, right? Doing the externals. Or like the moralist, sin can deceive us into comparison theology. Where as long as I can find someone or some group of people that are worse than me, I justify myself by my morality. Sin is so sneaky so sneaky that it can actually convince us that we don't need the gospel at all. That we don't need the substitutionary atonement of Christ at all. Like Paul, it can convince us that we are alive when we are in fact dead. It can make us think that sin is dead in our life while it is in fact alive and well and deceiving us. Sin can also deceive us through the seizure of the law by getting into our heads and speaking lies of condemnation to us, even though we belong to Jesus. Sin can deceive you, even in this room. Even through the preaching of this sermon, sin can deceive you, right, by speaking lies to you that you are so awful, that you are so dirty, that you are so filthy. It can deceive you into thinking that you must be the worst sinner in this room. And that you have no right to be here. The next step is for sin to deceive you into thinking that there's really no hope for you at all. No hope. And that you might as well give up on trying to keep the law. It'll seek to convince you that what you do no longer matters. doesn't even matter if I try to keep the law anymore. It doesn't even matter if I try to obey God, try to follow after him. Sin will try to deceive you into thinking, I've failed so many times. I should just give up. That's what sin wants to tell you. Sin can speak shame over you, even when there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. But sin, in its deceptiveness, can lay hold of the holy shalls and shall nots of Scripture, and instead of holding them out in front of you, serving as a guide, Sin can shackle them to your ankles, weigh you down, and make you feel as though everyone else is saying to you, get it together already. <laughs> Sin can deceive you by creating in you an antagonism to the law, to make you feel like God is against you, 
whether the law is unreasonable or unjust, or that he's just cruel, mean. Sin can deceive you about yourself. Sin can deceive you about itself. It does so by making sin very attractive. And for the licentious Christian, sin can even deceive you into thinking that since you now belong to Christ, you got nothing to worry about with any of that at all. It can convince you that you don't need the law, but only grace. That God's love and his law are somehow divorced. That you're now free to do what you want any old time. Including no longer allowing the law to reveal sin in you. In fact, no longer allowing the law to define sin for you. Now, remember what Paul's doing here. He's vindicating the law. Vindicating it. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? That the law is evil or or bad in some way? Absolutely not, Paul says. The law is holy The law is righteous. The law is good. It reveals sin in our life. It restrains sin in our life. And it leads us in the path of righteousness. The life path of of blessedness. The law isn't the problem here. Sin is. The law cannot save us because we cannot keep it, and the law cannot, we cannot perfectly keep it because of indwelling sin. It cannot justify us, nor can it sanctify us. It's not the antidote. Jesus is. Jesus is. And you might be thinking at this point, my goodness, this is what, what, what is this? What's happening right now? You know, like, why did God even give us the law then? Is, you know, he's just do it to torture us like that then? Or you might be thinking, is, if sin can do all that, is it actually more powerful than God? Look at verse 13. Paul writes, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, he says. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Why? In order that. There's a reason for it. There's a purpose for it all. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That's what Paul is saying is that God, in his infinite wisdom, allows sin to work. Allows sin to seize the base camp of the law. In order that, we might see sin for what it really is. In order that we might see sin for just how sinful it truly is. And cry out for a Savior. See, sin is clever, but it's never as clever as it thinks it is. It's never as clever as God who sent his son to set us free from all this. This leads us really well, actually, this morning to the Lord's table. This table reminds us that, 
that God is, is very serious about the law. Um, it reminds us that the law is holy and, and righteous and good. He's serious about it. So serious that each one of us needed Jesus to come and to die so that our breaking of the law, our inability to perfectly keep the law, could be covered, atoned for. And yet, the same Jesus, remember what he said? He, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. So he didn't abolish it. It, was, it isn't bad. It, it, we, don't, we don't get to throw it away. And he didn't just die to forgive you for breaking it. He fulfilled it. He perfectly kept the law, listen to this, on your behalf. And when you trust in him, it's not just his perfect death, but also his perfect righteousness that is counted as yours. Paul says it this way in Romans 10.4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, this table defines for us the proper place of the law in the Christian's life, reminding us Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. We don't keep the law in order to be justified. We don't keep the law in order to be sanctified. Christ kept the law for us on our behalf. And now, and now, as those who have been set free from the law, released from the law, we're free to obey. Empowered to obey by His Spirit. We're free and empowered to live in accordance with His law. And we desire to because of the newness of our heart. We're free to delight in His commandments. Because they don't stand over us condemning us anymore or shaming us anymore, but rather guiding us into the life path of blessedness. A path we desire to walk in if we truly belong to him. Listen, he loves you. He's given his commands because he knows what's best for you and because he loves you. He's given his son because he understands the power of sin and because he loves you. He's given you his spirit because he knows your inability and because he loves you. And he's given us this table because he knows how much we need reminded of it every single week and because he loves us. We're reminded of this when we hear the familiar words of, of institution each week that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and lifted it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it all of you for the forgiveness of your sins. And Paul writes that as long as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death for us until he comes again for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you that sin no longer has dominion over us. That through the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus, we've been set free from the law and yet empowered to keep it desirous to keep it and to walk in your ways. Lord, as we 
come to this table this morning and we partake in the bread, would you remind us the penalty for our law-breaking has been paid. It was placed upon Christ on the cross. As we drink of the wine or the juice, we would be reminded when we experience in a certain way Christ's blood shed for us, poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we do this together, and we proclaim Jesus Christ's death, would we do so knowing that we do so until he comes again, knowing that he's coming again in a Revelation 21 sort of way to fully and finally remove sin from this world, including indwelling sin that is in us? Lord, as we partake in this table, stir in our hearts desires for obedience. I'm going to pray this in Christ's name today. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.